Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. Over the last couple of days in South Africa, we've had a tragedy play out that really is a stain on our democracy. Yet another citizen of the continent has been killed. This time it is Elvis Nyati, who was in an act of vigilantism in Deep Sluit, killed. And this has been condemned locally and internationally, including by South Africa's Human Rights Commission. And of course, it raises a question about a broader movement over the last year or so in particular, but which has got deeper roots than just the short term. And that is movements like Operation Dudula, for example, and general xenophobia and specifically Afrophobia within the South African geography. Someone who's written an excellent essay that really compels us to self-examine as a country where we are at in terms of who we are, our place within the region, and indeed within the world, is well-known South African essayist and commentator and author, Sasonkam Samang. And if you haven't read her cover essay, please go out and buy a copy of the latest edition of Financial Mail or read it online. But it's one of those ones where you want to be romantic, despite the callous nature of the issues, and probably maintain a hard copy of this uh, really important edition of Financial Mail. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Sasonke is my guest this week. Sasonke, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eusebius. Before we get into the issues analytically, I think it's important to start at the level of Effect and emotion. You, in your memoir, Always Another Country, had traveled as a kid across the region, lived internationally, studied in the global north, you lived down under. So you are, in every sense of the word, very cosmopolitan and with the fortuitous opportunities of your family background, have a deep understanding of the connections between South Africa specifically and many of our neighboring countries and countries further across the continent. What comes up for you, just at a human level, when this story surfaces of Elvis? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to start, Eusebius. A lot comes up for me, obviously. On the one hand, having benefited from living in um, other African countries, specifically Zambia and Kenya growing up, I um, understand what it means to be an outsider and a foreigner, quote unquote, uh, an African, African one living in a different African context. So that experience is very real for me. Uh, and having benefited from the generosity of those countries, I also feel a sense of, um, I guess, shame is a, is a good word to describe it. I feel ashamed. Uh, about what we do here. 
on the one hand. And of course, I've written about this, that it's complex and that um, I was obviously uh, a privileged African child because of the ANC status. So not rich, but the status of the ANC meant that we had a measure of protection and solidarity. So people saw us as special because of the freedom struggle. And so we were treated very kindly. And so, of course, in the present context, there isn't the context of uh, people don't understand Zimbabweans to be here because of a freedom struggle they are waging. Although I think if we thought enough, deeply enough about it, we would recognize that many of the people who are living within our borders are here because they can't be in their country, either for political reasons or for deep socioeconomic reasons, which we ought to have care and thought for. So on one level, that's what I, what I feel. And then on another level, as a South African who is influent in my own mother tongue, who can get by, but certainly if I was stopped and asked to say elbow in Isizulu, I would struggle with that. If I am interacting with police uh, on a, you know, on the street, I get nervous. Um, so I also feel a sense of um, um, that it would be easy for me to be othered and easy for me just at a personal level to be the subject of violence. Uh, and that, that also, uh, I, I guess, makes me feel even more empathetic to the situation of what's happening with, with African migrants. I think it might be useful if we tackle this in two directions. And I promise you, dear listener, we'll get to the second which is probably where people would want us to go to quickly. We will ask the question compassionately, what might be behind some of these tropes in the country and not speaking at the perpetrators, but trying to understand their motor force. But before we get there, I want us to spend a bit of time on a different theme, which is really to give some texture to how this might play out how this compares to echoes of the past, so that we have a thick account of the unrealities that's going on. And there are so many. One that comes up for me, Sasonke, is the echoes with the Dompas, the pass laws. And when I see police in Dipslut going around, checking for documentation, notwithstanding the fact that the day before you have had someone killed, when I think about an entire Minister of Home Affairs thinking that it is a glorious political moment to spend part of his Christmas holiday on the border within a country adjacent to ours. Of course, law enforcement is important, but in terms of depicting what we are going through and drawing on comparative local or global history, one image for me that keeps coming back is footage of the apartheid system policing us in terms of where we can and can't go and in terms of carving out markers of legitimate bodies and illegitimate bodies in our geographies. Yeah, I think there are two things. One is the, the Donbass and the fact that we have moved from a history in which Police cannot just be looking at someone crossing the street and decide that their very being is suspicious. That tr very much troubles me. And there are countries in the world where Australia is a good example. The police are not allowed to stop you if you are not engaged in a criminal act or if there isn't a reason for suspicion and where you can 
refuse to show an ID on principle. It is your right as a citizen not to carry an ID because people's sense of freedom of movement and privacy is such that in that society is not an acceptable thing, even for the authorities to, to, to ask. So that, on the one hand, there's the Dompas thing. And then the other obvious one with these questions about language is the pencil test. This is a modern day pencil test that's being applied. And I think a number of people in the public domain have said that, both of which are throwbacks to an era that we don't want to return to. And I think we also have to recognize that what we see in the footage and the clips and what people, you know, um, who worry about these things have, you know, talked to me about is police stopping people arbitrary now because there's a sentiment, there's an anti-immigrant sentiment. But we also know that people routinely stop, the police routinely stop people so that they can take bribes. So there is also a, a way in which the police power is not legitimate. And this whole idea somehow that a lot of xenophobic people are using, Afrophobic people are using to say, let the police do it. And I, I'm very worried about that uh, line of thinking that, you know, the problem is, is, is the vigilantism. It's not the xenophobia, but actually it's both, right? So that even if you have a legitimate force, which is the police asking people for their IDs, that's still not a legitimate thing to do. So, so that's, that's what worries me about the excessive police power that we've seen in the past. Of course, this is apartheid in, in, in action, excessive police power. A third thing before we move on to understanding what may explain this is something that you mention in your cover essay and touch on, of course, which is there's also an othering going on here. The othering is the very basis of apartheid itself. And South Africans, in our obsession with our own exceptionalism, hate any continuities with pre-94 being pointed out because the discontinuities are genuine and many and important. But neo-apartheid tendencies can't be overlooked just because it's painful to talk about echoes with the apartheid era. And for me, I thought the very point of the never-again approach to constitutionalism in the mid-1990s is that we were supposed to turn our back on the very project of othering, and yet we are re-inscribing it in this moment. Absolutely. And part of the reason we find ourselves at an othering moment, and this will be a bridge, I'm sure, to the part of the conversation you want to get to, part of the reason we find ourselves in this othering moment is because of the complete failure of the state to help to build a social welfare system and a society in which that kind of generosity, care is possible amongst people. So we still, in terms of continuities also, we still live in such a deeply violent society, right? And so both the othering uh, continue as well as the violence that really characterized the apartheid era. Those remain very firmly embedded as part of the way that South Africa operates. And so you see the confluence of those two things, othering and violence. You see it playing itself out in xenophobia, but you also see it playing itself out in many of the ways in which poor people in this country live. Um, you saw it a few years ago during lockdown, that terrible scene in Cape Town where a man is, um, is uh, sleeping. Uh, he's taking a bath and he's naked in his own shack. 
And then the police come and dismantle his shack literally around him. That kind of indignity and that kind of violence absolutely is a hangover of apartheid, but it's become embedded in our modern society. So part of the thing about talking about xenophobia is to make sure that we don't do it as though it's separate from all of the other violent ways that South Africa continues to operate, especially towards poor people, many of whom, of course, are migrants, right? But I think it is important to talk about it as a, as a woven into the fabric of the society. I think you've got to the nub of the bridge between describing the moment and understanding what's going on. And in fact, you've already complicated the picture, rightly so, because we can't neatly divide the two themes. Because what I was going to say is, as you alluded to, and we can now go there explicitly, one of the driving forces behind the othering, the violent lashing out against fellow citizens, is that the state has failed to deliver on its constitutional mandate and the proverbial better life for all sloganeered by the ANC never arrived for millions of black people living on the margins of society. It is not deeper than that. It doesn't legitimate the violence, but it is an important explanation of it. I think that's what's going on. And I want you to tell me whether you agree, whether you think there's more. Where I think you've complicated the picture appropriately so is that, of course, what's tragic about lashing out against a Zimbabwean is that the state is pretending that it too is a victim of Zimbabweans coming into Johannesburg and apparently burdening state services. So we should be putting the state on trial, but we are falling for the ruse that the state is overburdened by foreign nationals when in fact the state, courtesy the ANC's endemic corruption and lack of ethical leadership, is what landed us here in the Absolutely. first place. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of things to unpack in that set of statements you've made. So on the one hand, it's very obvious that the problem of corruption has exacerbated the issue we are in. And it's important to think about the corruption, for example, in home affairs and the entire way that system functions as not being accidental. So let's bring two conversations together. There's a conversation around corruption and state capture, which we've been having separately as a society. And the current moment and the extreme vulnerability of poor South Africans and migrants is an example of what has happened because of corruption. And corruption exists, particularly in home affairs, not by mistake, but on purpose. So what you have is a state that is dysfunctional so that officials can extract as much money as possible from migrants who then are here in limbo in a very vulnerable situation. I think we have to recognize that it's not a case of a few bad apples, that we actually have what is a systemic amount of corruption that has now created a systemic problem in our society of many, many, many people being here um, who shouldn't be, quote unquote, right? So that's one set of problems. And I think the analysis about the, the pr predatory state is important because if we 
if a group of people on the one hand are up in arms about state capture and on the other hand are able to be xenophobic, I think we have to ask them questions so that they can see the linkages between those two. You can't be against state capture and then also be xenophobic because you have to recognize what's happening with the, with xenophobia. A lot of that is about state capture. So that's the one the one thing I would comment I would make about that. I think the second comment about and I I worry about it's important because the conversation about um, African migrants and competition for jobs has been framed in a way that um, provides an explanatory model, the burden on the state, et cetera. But at the same time, I think if we were talking about racism and we said, well, you know, the reason why white people respond this way is because they're scared that black people are going to take their jobs with BE. I think we would have questions about whether that's an appropriate link to make, because what you're doing is you're scaremongering and you're causing a narrative around an entire group of people that doesn't make sense. So part of me gets the social conditions framing and understands why. And in my essay, I make the point about unemployment, but I'm also nervous about making that point because I think it concedes some ground um, ideologically. Well, can I, I mean, you, you're making the point beautifully as you always do and incisively and you're still challenging us, but I wonder whether I can be blunt and put some words in your mouth and you can push back if I'm pulling the rug of subtlety from under you. Are you suggesting that we shouldn't be scared just because people live under conditions of poverty of saying that you can be genuinely frustrated and still be racist and still be xenophobic? And just because there's a pushback against the framing of xenophobia or racism or Afrophobia doesn't mean that that isn't what it is. Even someone who goes to bed hungry can be a bigot. Yeah, that's basically what I'm saying. And part of why... I'm uncomfortable saying it is because there's the general public conversation in which it's not okay to say that anymore. And that's new. That's a new development in the last couple of years. And at the same time, I also want to have a conversation that is about poverty. That is about the burden on the social welfare system. That is a result of um, corruption and a number of very poorly informed policy decisions including foreign policy, regional integration strategies, helping to fix the problems at home for people who find themselves in a situation where they have to come to South Africa. Nobody wants to leave home. Nobody would just pick up and say, actually, I I, I really don't want to live in Zimbabwe. I really don't want to live in Malawi. I hate living in Mozambique. People who are uh, people would prefer to live at home most of the time. Right. So we have to recognize that there are, of course, some economic migrants who are looking for opportunities, et cetera. But the vast majority of poor people would like to be able to make a living at home. So, yes, I think there is a bigotry problem in South Africa. And I use that word, you know, with 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 a lot of deliberation. We are bigots. And one of the ways in which our bigotry is taking shape is in blaming foreigners, quote unquote, for a lot of the problems that we created. And that also we have when we have genuine and legitimate concerns about our economic security, we also scapegoat and blame foreigners. That's not okay. There's a parenthetical question that I, because I want to move to other themes. I was going to make this a a whole theme, but I'm going to only ask it parenthetically because we have inadvertently engaged it. 
I was listening to my colleague's podcast at the Sunday Times, who does a Sunday Times weekly hosted by Mike Saluma, um, who deputizes to Stan Bezos, editor of Msomi, editor of the, the Sunday Times. And he was speaking to an academic, but also to one of our arena holdings reporters who has done a lot of on-the-ground reporting, often in Alex, in the CBD, in Soweto, where Operation Dudula is. And that's an important vantage point from a reportage point of view because it complements the work that we do as broadcasters, as as analysts, because we're not there, Yeah, if we are honest about it. Definitely. And one of the questions Mike put to him that I really enjoyed is to say, how do these guys feel? When you speak to them, what is the demographic? Who's actually there? And a couple of things stood out for me. I mean, in terms of quote unquote color, literally and figuratively, is that it's quite interesting, um, especially in the South, a lot of black women actually. You even think sometimes they're in a numerical majority, and a lot of young people as well. And that tells you something about the most oppressed people, the ones who are the worst in terms of the burden of unemployment in the country by demographic segmentation. But then he said something else. He said, Mike, the leadership and ordinary, quote-unquote, members often feel that middle-class strata in society and commentators speak at them rather than speaking having a conversation with them. What do you make of that kind of claim? I think it's a true, it's a very good point. And I think it's also a big reason why so many middle-class people don't feel that they can talk about this issue anymore because your class status delegitimizes what you have to say because you're not living in a situation where you're rubbing up against people and feeling the sense of, ah, you know, this Zimbabwean, right? So therefore, who am I to say, don't hate Zimbabweans when I don't have to deal with Zimbabweans, you know, overcrowding me, quote unquote, right? So I completely understand the analysis. I think it's, and it's important not to allow that to delegitimize what's wrong and what's right. It is important to recognize that when people are angry about African migrants, one, there is a basis of bigotry behind that because of our history. So I get where it comes from. So there's a um, social and, and historical reasons for that. But there are real economic concerns that people want to be heard. And they are using African migrants in some ways as a proxy for that conversation. So what I'm always interested in is getting underneath the proxy rather than engaging with the proxy as the problem. That's very, that's very difficult. So that's, that's my, my first take on, on how to respond to that. Um, but I think that the class thing has a silencing effect or an over amplification effect. That's my, that's my worry. I, I was on a walk when I was listening to the podcast and I enjoy Mike's podcast because he is, is a good host and, and just allows some breathing 
from reporters and usually with, with either an academic or a commentator. But I also thought to myself, you know, it cuts both ways. I mean, firstly, quite frankly, unless you are white in this country, you necessarily have class diversity in your own family. There are very few of us in the suburbs who come from the suburbs, who are raised in the suburbs. And so the kind of silencing effect I reject. I'm sorry. I don't care whether you want to get retweeted 500 times by scoffing at Eusebius and Sosonke speaking from the middle class about what's happening in Yeovil. We're not going to be the best possible us as a society, which will lead me to the next theme soon, um, if we're going to be scared to call each other out because of the complicated meta questions about who's allowed to speak and whose voice counts. And it seems to me that we need to generously hear each other's criticism about each other's viewpoints rather than saying, ah, if you live in Houghton, you're not allowed to construct a viewpoint about what we are doing in Hilbra. Yes, at the same time, I think it, it behooves the media to diversify the number and type of voices that we are hearing in the xenophobia debate in a way that um, addresses class stratification. So what I haven't seen enough is, um, is any of the media houses going out to commission someone who lives in Hillbrow to write about their experience of why they choose not to be xenophobic, for example. Because otherwise we fall into the trap of thinking that everyone who lives in Hillbrow who is South African is actually xenophobic. And I also reject that. I equally reject that. We see I that agree. there's totally a diverse agree. range of opinions. I think the 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 killing of Elvis Nyati is painful and very difficult. But what's also worth observing is that in the past we have had this kind of outbreak, which turns into scores of deaths. And what didn't happen is another death and another death and another death. So something's interesting that is happening there at the level of the community, a debate and an engagement and a standing up that I think is also worth investigating and looking at. So so, no, so that it doesn't I, I only become yeah, the middle class who are always speaking against xenophobia, right? Because that's you know, and I think that's a media's role is to say, no, it's not just the middle class. I'm I'm interested in hearing what other people think about xenophobia and not always reinforcing the idea that it's just poor people who are xenophobic. Well, it brings me to the third last issue, which is that notwithstanding what my arena colleague discussed on on the Sunday Times podcast, I'm actually not so sure whether there is, quote unquote, middle class consensus that the bottom base of South African society is shamefully xenophobic. If we look at political leadership, the political landscape, and also the chatter amongst the so-called suburbanites and middle class, there are very few things South Africans are united around. Uh, bemoaning the failures of Bafana might be one of them. Enjoying a good <laughs> prize, another one. <laughs> Despite our critiques of development pipelines in rugby. We cry in unison when we win the World Cup. And then dare I say it, xenophobia. There's a reason why all the political parties are jumping on this bandwagon, because actually, I'm not so sure there is a sharp class division when it comes to how we look at 
foreigners in our midst. I couldn't agree with you more. When you, I think, you know, as South Africans who have been engaged in the workplace with colleagues over the years, I think we can both admit that we have heard things being said um, about, um, about, you know, professionals from Zimbabwe or professionals from, you know, whatever place and, and, and rumblings about why are they taking our jobs or why are they getting promoted, et cetera. And that often finds its articulation through initially, I remember in the early days, it was um, especially with people who came from Zimbabwe because the education system was so excellent. And so there was the sense that hiring a Zimbabwean was quote unquote, a shortcut to get a good black, right? So there's all kinds of terrible narratives that middle-class people spawn. And so I completely agree with you. Part again of this idea that, you know, it's only middle-class people who oppose xenophobia obscures the reality that xenophobia is a great uniting uh, factor in South Africa because of our history is that we were isolated. And one thing that apartheid taught us was that we should be scared of Africa. So this is a hangover of, of, of apartheid and we have to reject it as such. Um, and we have to address of all of our social problems, but addressing those social problems is not gonna happen under the guise of, you know, suggesting that foreigners are fundamental, have anything to do with our problems. The penultimate issue I wanted to explore which goes back to your cover essay in Financial Mail, is that obviously, as I said at the outset, the material conditions under which millions of people live are dire, which leaves a leadership vacuum to be filled, and it gets filled by populist political leadership or community-based organizations that spring up and tap into the discontent. That's my reading of why there is for the moment, such discursive potency around Operation Dudula and someone like Lax Glamini, who suddenly emerges. You make a good comparative point. One of the ways in which Lux seduces is that he code switches, perhaps authentically, because again, as I said about all of us as black middle-class folk, we have roots that make us genuinely versatile. We're not being inauthentic when we code switch. So he can fit in as a cheese boy. He can speak the township lingo. He can do all of those things. And one of the many tricks that he has is to also speak about the importance of the rule of law, to tell people anyone can lay a charge against me, let the law take its course. We want to go with the police. You warn the readers of mail, financial mail and the country that the apparent commitment to lawfulness should not be seen as constitutionalism at play. And the example of Pagat is instructive. Fill it out for us. So the Pagat example, I think, is actually the best comparison to Operation Dudula because Pagat began from an organic sense in the community in the Cape Flats that the police were not helping people, and that crime was out of control. So people needed to take control of their own lives. And they began to do that and were wildly popular. And the police enabled them. 
in that sense, because they thought they could see, wow, these guys are getting success. Often Pagad, like Operation Dujula, would invite the police and say, we've identified this person. Everyone in the community knows that they're a bad guy. Come, come and arrest them. So it started out with a lot of goodwill and it broke down very quickly to the point where Paga then became a an ungovernable, unlawful force. We saw them burning uh, Stachy, you know, or in front of all of us. Um, so things move very quickly and can be out of the control of people who think that they are in control. I think it is an overestimation of, uh, on Lux's part to think even if naively, naively, let's give him credit and say he genuinely believes that um, he can harness social power and then use the police. Very quickly, that will get out of his control. Nobody has that kind of political authority that you're going to set up chapters in community after community. And when you're not there, what's going to happen when people are angry, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a, Pagat is a great example, which, you know, of course, uh, you know, ends up on the terror list, the U.S. terror list. Right. Because it bombs nightclubs, it decides it hates gay people. Um, so all of these isms are very deeply linked. And that's why I insist on calling it bigotry, because we know that there is a connection between xenophobia, between homophobia. People who hate others will always other. Right. So, so that's part of the, 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 the Pagat story. I want to make another point about Operation Dudula, which I think is important, which is that in so many ways, I find myself, you know, maybe I'm a dreamer, but if I think to myself, isn't it possible to have a social movement that harnesses people's energy and excitement around making a change that doesn't have to operate on a narrative of otherness, that doesn't have to be vigilantism? So I, I wonder, I imagine a, a Lux-like character who simply opted for the other the other door. And I think we have to keep the other door a possibility in our conversations, right? Because otherwise there's- Sounds to me like you're searching for Dove over Lux. Exactly. So, because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise there's an inevitability about what is happening. And I think we always have to keep the possibility open that there will be other community builders, other community leaders, that they are, in fact, other community leaders who don't have a social media platform, but who are doing the work of resisting, opposing, who may not articulate themselves in the narrative of constitutionalism and fancy words. I think we have to keep not only keep that possibility alive, but look for them. And as the media, profile them, because this guy has gotten a whole lot of profile. And critically... And I don't just mean negatively, but even by way of making sense of him. But Although Sizwet Lomo is the one who's, who did a very good interview with him. I really thought, and he, he's the one who gave the Pagad analogy that I heard the first time, and I dug into it deeper in my essay. But Sizwet, I think, held him to account in that conversation in a way that I haven't heard anyone else doing. Your last remark about being a dreamer perfectly segues to the last question I had for you. A thread throughout your piece and you are more blunt about it towards the end, but it almost points towards a second piece to come. It has to do with the idea of South Africa that we seem to be, particularly in this moment, defining ourselves negatively, who we are not, against fellow Africans, for example. And without parking 
the tough material questions around statecraft, a competent bureaucracy, better policies for job creation, economic growth, and poverty alleviation, it is important that we drill down simultaneously into the conversation around who we are, who we want to be. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think who we are and who we want to be and this question about a functional state are fundamentally tied. So the definition of who South Africans want to be, I think, is tied to Africa. We are part of the African continent and our identity as Africans is, was central to our liberation struggle. It was central to our anti-colonial struggles in the same way that it has been central to the identities of every African who lives on this continent. This, if you think about the joy, excitement, celebration in political terms, what happens when Africans gather in context when there isn't xenophobia, right? If you think about uh, cheering for teams in the World Cup, if you think about all of those moments of, of pure joy, I think a lot of them emanate from the notion that Africans have survived and been resilient in the face of hundreds of years of colonialism, that there are aspects pre-colonially of our identities that are about Ubuntu, that there are things in common across this continent that are about cultures and rituals, the way we dance and move. There are so many things about Africa that join us. And our, so our identity as a positive notion of what it means to be South African, it cannot be that we are connected geographically on this continent and we continue to see ourselves as separate. And you see that in terms of statecraft when you look at the region people will continue to come to South Africa. The South African state will have to address how we do that. We will have to integrate more fully into SADC. This is a problem in the same way that you saw Britain exiting from the EU. Britain cannot be separate from Europe in the same way that South Africa cannot be separate from Europe, right? So if you're anti-Brexit, surely you have to be anti-xenophobia. The notion of being part of a region and an African is fundamentally intertwined with making this welfare state work here, with making economic policy work with Zimbabwe, with making foreign policy that is humane and that allows people to stay where they are or come here without barriers and blockages and then go home when they want to in a similar economic framework and regional framework as we have in West Africa with ECOWAS. We have models, we, we know how to do this, the good feeling and goodwill is there. What we need is a leadership to take us there. Unfortunately, that's where we continue to fall down, um, but absolutely the steps are clear on how we get to a South African identity that is fundamentally joyful and exciting and also feeds into the building economic South Africa that works for everybody. I think that's a vision that's hopeful without collapsing into sentimentality. And I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Eusebius.